You're listening to Bonus Points, the official podcast of Mr. Astle's theology class. Join us as we put out into the deep and explore the world of theology and beyond. Today, we're talking about how to understand what we read in the Bible. Let's begin. Well, welcome to another episode of Bonus Points. This is episode 26, the fourth and final episode in our series on how to read the Bible. As always, if you haven't already, please subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen and share this episode with a friend. Last time we talked about how somebody might read scripture for different reasons, and our focus was on Lexio Divina, on reading scripture as a form of prayer. But we also mentioned that you can read scripture as a way of understanding God better, how we can learn important truths about God and, and ourselves by reading the Bible. Today, that's what we're going to talk about, how we can come to understand Scripture better by studying it. So, just to give you the roadmap, what we hope to do today is we'll start with talking about why interpretation is necessary, and we'll talk about the strengths and weaknesses of the historical critical method of studying scripture, which is a very popular approach to scripture nowadays. And then we'll talk about the four senses of scripture. This is a super helpful set of lenses that we use to go deeper and try to understand some of the things that aren't as clear on the surface. And if you are in my classes, especially if you just took Old and New Testament, that should be a very familiar concept for you. And then finally, we're going to look at Vatican II's three criteria for biblical interpretation which are three characteristics that we can use to distinguish a good interpretation from a bad one. But first, why do we need to interpret the Bible at all? So in Acts of the Apostles, we have this story where Philip encounters an Ethiopian eunuch on the road, and he hears that he's reading the book of Isaiah. And so Philip asks him, do you understand what you're reading? And the Ethiopian responds, how can I unless somebody teaches me? That's important because if you've ever read the Bible, you know that not all parts of the Bible are easy to understand. Uh, Sometimes it's unclear how we're supposed to read a particular passage. And even when you have something that sounds clear enough on the surface, you know there's something more going on deeper. There's something, there's some deeper meaning that we need to unlock. Now, there are some, uh, especially in fundamentalist circles, who say the Bible's easy to understand and that, that the surface level tells you everything you need to know, that there's no need to interpret. But this doesn't match up with what we believe about the Bible, and it certainly doesn't match up with most of our experiences of the Bible if you've ever just opened it up and read. So this is where you get biblical scholars who devote their entire careers to trying to understand Scripture. Now, there are many ways of doing this, but one that I want to mention today is called the historical critical method. This is a, a, an approach to scripture that has become very popular over the last 200 years or so, and it originated among Protestant Bible scholars, but it has been, it's been gaining more and more ground in Catholic circles as well. And what the historical critical method does is it tries to understand the Bible better by understanding the historical context. That's why it's called the historical critical method. This means studying things like the culture, the language, the history, and the archaeology of the setting in which the Bible was written. Now, this isn't a bad thing. 
I, I'm not against the historical critical method, but I do think that we have to be cautious. So here's why I think it's a good thing. We know that the human authors of scripture were inspired by the Holy Spirit, but they were still genuine authors. We said a few episodes ago that the Holy Spirit didn't possess them or drag their hand across the page. They used their human abilities and their human intellect to write, even if that process was guided by the Holy Spirit. This means that that they used an intellect which was conditioned by their historical context. And so we can understand more by understanding things like history and language and culture and archaeology. Now, here's the, here's the danger. Here's what we need to watch out for. The historical critical method, if we're not careful, tends to reduce the Bible to just another ancient document. It treats scripture like any other old document that we're trying to understand. It minimizes the divine inspiration as well as the importance of sacred tradition, which we'll talk about when we talk about the criteria for interpretation. So I throw that out there because it's a very common term that comes up, and it's not something we're opposed to. It's just something we want to keep in its proper place, and we don't want in any way to minimize the divine inspiration of Scripture, even if we are always trying to understand it better. Okay, now when we look at the Bible, we know that there's more going on below the surface, beyond the basic sense. In fact, Many of the early church fathers recognized that every passage in scripture can be read in two senses, the literal and the spiritual. Now, by the, by the medieval era, theologians had divided the spiritual sense into three spiritual senses, the allegorical or Christological, the moral or tropological, and the anagogical. And so all, all combined, we get four senses of scripture, literal, allegorical, moral, and anagogical. Let's begin with the literal sense because the spiritual sense always has to build on the literal. You can never get away from the literal. Now, as we said in episode 23, reading the Bible literally does not mean that we don't recognize that some passages are meant to be read symbolically or metaphorically. What the literal sense means is asking, what was the author trying to convey to his audience? Of course, this requires us to understand both the author and his audience. We also have to take genre into account because different genres are trying to communicate different things. Think about the difference between a history book and a fairy tale. Both are trying to communicate something true. We're not going to say that one of them is false. But a history book and a fairy tale are trying to transmit different kinds of truth, and they're not supposed to be read in the same way. And it's the same with scripture. Take Jesus' parables, for example. These are stories that Jesus told to convey important truths and important lessons, but he wasn't necessarily telling us that there was an actual historical young Jewish man who ran away from home, ended up tending swine, and then uh, came home to his father. It's possible, but that's not necessarily what Jesus was saying. He was trying to convey important lessons through the use of a story. I don't remember, but we may have already used this example back in episode 23, but it's worth repeating here. And uh, in an upcoming episode, we're going to talk about how we know what genre the Gospels are, and we're going to have that conversation with a guest speaker. Anyway, just to recap, the literal sense 
is what was the author trying to convey to his audience? This could just be a straight-up description of a historical event, or it could be something symbolic or poetic. The literal sense just means we're, we're reading what the author was trying to say. Next, let's talk about the three spiritual senses, because what the spiritual sense does is it takes us deeper, and it reveals what God is trying to tell us about, about himself and about us. And so the first spiritual sense is called the allegorical or sometimes the Christological sense because the allegorical sense points to Christ. This is an important one because Jesus is the word made flesh. He is the definitive revelation of God to us. And so all of scripture is is pointing to Christ ultimately, whether it's Old Testament or New Testament, because God speaks one word that the word that we receive in scripture, the word of God, and the word made flesh. So the allegorical sense reads scripture and and asks, what does it say about Christ? The clearest and and most well-known way that scripture does this is through what's called typology. This is when you have something that prefigures something else. Usually it's something in the Old Testament that prefigures or points to something in the New Testament. So, for example, we look at an Old Testament figure like Melchizedek, and we can see how he is a type of Christ. He is um, the Prince of Salem, which means peace. So he's the Prince of Peace. We see he offers this bread and wine sacrifice. Uh, We look at someone like David and see how David prefigures Christ and how all the things David did, Jesus did better. We look at Noah's Ark and see how it is a type of baptism because The waters of the flood cleanse sin from the earth, just like the waters of baptism cleanse us of our sin. We can look at a story like the sacrifice of Isaac and show all the parallels between that event and the crucifixion. And so if we read scripture in the allegorical sense, that could mean we're looking for types. We're looking for things in the Old Testament that are fulfilled in the New Testament. But even in the New Testament, we can read things allegorically if we ask the question, what does this reveal about Jesus? So take, for example, Christ's baptism in the Jordan from the beginning of the Gospels. If we're reading in the literal sense, we would be asking, well, what happened? Um, We would look at details like, what exactly was this baptism that John was performing? Where did this happen? When did this happen? The literal sense would focus on the story itself. But if we're going to read the baptism of Christ in the allegorical sense, we would ask, okay, so what does this reveal about Jesus? And we would see that it reveals that Jesus is the Son of God. It reveals the Trinity because we see Father, Son, and Spirit all present here. It reveals how Jesus is the Anointed One, the Messiah, the Christ. And so I know we usually think of typology when we think about the allegorical sense, but it can be much more than that. The allegorical sense asks, what does this reveal about Christ? The next sense is the moral or the tropological sense, and this one points to us. So if the allegorical sense takes scripture and shows how it points to Christ, the moral sense shows how scripture points to us. We say that scripture is a lamp to our feet and a light to our paths. We see how often the Psalms speak about the wisdom of following God's law. And so the moral sense asks, how should this affect the way that I live? Now, sometimes it's very direct. Sometimes we read like the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus is very directly telling us, do this and don't do this. 
Other times we read scripture and we see good examples. We look at the things that people do in the Bible and we think, hey, I should be more like that. Sometimes it's non-examples. Sometimes we see bad examples uh, of things we shouldn't do. But in any case, to read scripture in the moral sense is to look at a passage and ask, how should this affect the way that I live, either by instructing me in what I should do or in helping me to avoid what I should not do? And the last of the four senses is the anagogical sense. Uh, The word anagogical comes from the Greek word for destiny because this sense points forward, especially to our final destiny, the, the last things, death, judgment, heaven, and hell. And so we read a passage and ask, what does this reveal about where we're going? What does this tell us about, about heaven? What does this tell us about the, the last things, the end of time? Now, it's not always easy to find all four senses in every single passage of scripture. There are some where you can, you can get all four. But if nothing else, every passage in scripture has a literal sense. And again, that's always where we need to start. And we can always get at least one of those three spiritual senses. Sometimes it's easier than others. Okay, so you can start to see how it might be possible to come up with a wide range of interpretations for any given passage. But this doesn't mean that all interpretations are good. Now, sometimes a passage can be saying multiple things to us. Definitely, there can be a passage that speaks on multiple levels. But that doesn't mean that all possible interpretations are good. You know, there are an infinite, um, how many numbers are there between one and two? They're infinite, if you count decimals and stuff. But that doesn't mean that three is one of them. So just because there, there, is a, there are multiple valid interpretations, that doesn't mean that any interpretation is a valid one. So how do you know whether an interpretation is good, whether it's one that we come up with on our own or one that we hear presented to us. Luckily, the church has given us some good advice in this area. So for this, we're turning to the document De Verbum, which was Vatican II's Constitution on Divine Revelation. This document emphasized that we have to read a passage in context. Why? Because if you take a passage and you read it out of context, at best, you run the risk of reading something into the text that isn't there. We don't want to over-spiritualize things. We don't want to try to implant meaning that isn't there. So, And when we read out of context, we run the risk of doing that. And that's at best. At worst, reading things out of context is a way for us to take our own beliefs and try to fit scripture around them, either consciously or unconsciously. It should be the other way around, right? We should allow scripture to change us. But what often happens is we try to take what we already think and we try to make scripture agree with us. And so we can avoid both of those much more surely if we're able to read in context. Dave Erbum then gives three criteria, three three ways of making sure we're reading scripture in context. I'm going to say what the three are first, then we're going to talk about each one. The first one is the content and unity of the whole of scripture. The second one is the living tradition of the church. And the third one is the analogy of faith. And you might think, well, that didn't sound that helpful at all. That's why we're going to talk about them. So the first one, we need to keep in mind the content and unity of the whole of scripture. This means we have to look at the surrounding verses, the surrounding passage. We can't just take one verse 
take it out of context and run with it, we have to look at it in the context of what is around it in the passage. Not only that, we also have to look at the entire corpus of that author. So take Paul, for example. If we're trying to interpret a passage from, let's say, Romans, we not only have to look at that verse, the verses around it, we have to look at the entire letter to the Romans, and we have to look at all of Paul's other letters as well. And not only that, but we have to look at how this fits within the context of the entire Bible. I know we said a few episodes ago that the Bible is more like a library than a single book, but it's still united. It's still God's word, not God's words, plural. So that means that scripture is going to be consistent. If you have a good interpretation, it's not going to be in conflict with any other part of scripture. You can't understand any one part of the Bible outside of the context of the entire Bible. So that's what this first criteria is saying, is to read a passage in context means you have to read it in light of not only the the immediate text around it, but also the entire book, the entire corpus of that author, and the entire Bible. Now, if you ask most people about reading scripture in context, that's where they'd stop. They'd say you have to read it in context of scripture. But we're going to go even further than that, because as Catholics, we believe that God reveals himself both in scripture and tradition. Now, scripture itself supports this. Um, In his letter to the Thessalonians, St. Paul specifically tells the Thessalonians to hold fast to the traditions that were handed on to you, either by letter or word of mouth. And both St. Paul and Jesus himself acknowledged extra-biblical traditions. Now, we don't have time to get into that now, but I'll have some resources where you can learn more. And we can think of tradition as the church's deepening understanding of Scripture over time as that process is guided by the Holy Spirit. I love the way that the Ignatius Study Bible puts it. Um, It tells us that we need to avoid scholarly provincialism, which would essentially say that everybody else has gotten it wrong, but we finally figured it out. You know, um, we're not the first generation to study the Bible. We're part of a long chain of believers that go back all the way to ancient Israel. Generations upon generations have lived the scriptures very deeply as part of everyday life through their art, through their customs, through their liturgy. And so we can't just throw that away. We can't just say, none of them knew what they were talking about. Finally, here we are in this enlightened age. We got it right. So a good interpretation can build on what has come before. It can even look at things from a new angle. But we, a good interpretation won't be running contrary to a legitimate tradition. I always like the analogy of the jewel. Um, So we talk about the deposit of faith, like this treasure chest, right? And we take things out and, and we maybe toss them from hand to hand. We study them from different angles. And by doing that, we come to understand it better. And that's kind of what happens when we study scripture. You know, um, one scholar holds it one way and looks at it. And then maybe they toss it to another scholar who looks at it from a different angle. But at the end of the day, they're, they're studying different facets of the same thing. They're not going to contradict. And so when we talk about studying scripture in light of tradition, that's what we mean. So even if we do develop new angles, even if we do build on what has come before, a good interpretation won't say everybody else has gotten it wrong. We need to throw out everything that came before us. We're going to start fresh. We finally got it right. The last criteria is called the analogy of faith. 
Now, if we believe that the Bible is God's word, then it will be consistent not only within itself, but with everything else that God has revealed. Because we believe that our faith is not man-made. It is divinely inspired. It is divinely revealed. This means that our faith is consistent. You will never find one area of Catholic teaching that contradicts another. You'll never find one dogma or doctrine um, that goes against another one. Because we have to be consistent. Because God is truth and truth does not contradict truth. So, I know all of this can sound pretty complicated. But remember there's this thing called the sensus fidelium or the sense of the faith. When you have somebody who's living their faith deeply, when you have somebody who is in deep communion with God, they have a sort of intuition for something that seems fishy. If you went up to the old lady who who goes to daily mass and prays 20 rosaries a day, and you try to teach her Arianism or some other heresy, she might have never taken a theology class in her life, but she's going to know that that's not right. If you try to tell her, you know, Jesus isn't actually God, he's only like God, even if she's never studied um, the teachings of Arius or the Council of Nicaea, she's going to have a good sense for that doesn't seem right. Now, this obviously isn't an infallible sense, but it is a good prompt for us to go deeper. It's a good prompt when we encounter something that seems off for one reason or another, it can encourage us to to do, do our homework and go deeper. So, as we wrap up here, let's remember to keep first things first. Yes, the point, yes, we study scripture to understand it better, but understanding scripture is not the end, it's the means. We want to understand scripture so that we can love its author better. Interpretation always has to be guided by the Holy Spirit because at the end of the day, we're reading the Bible to love God more, not just to know things. And so we let the Holy Spirit guide our interpretation both within our hearts as we read scripture, but also in the church, which is animated by the Spirit. So, last words here. I hope that you try this out. Set aside a few minutes and prayerfully listen to what God is trying to say to you. What resources can I offer you today? Well, I'm going to have a link to Acts chapter 8 where you can read the story of Philip and the Ethiopian. I'll also have a Catholic Answers article about biblical criticism and especially the historical critical method. I'll have a link to the Catechism where it describes the four senses of Scripture, as well as Vatican II's document, De Verbum. That's where we got those three criteria. You can also read more about what Vatican II had to say about Scripture and tradition. I'll have a link to the Ignatius Study Bible, which I know I've mentioned before as a very helpful resource. It has a phenomenal article in it on biblical interpretation, so make sure you check that out. And then finally, I'll have a link to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, where you can hear St. Paul encourage the Thessalonians to hold fast to tradition. So make sure you check out those resources, make sure you spend some time with scripture today, and while we're on the subject of things you should do today, make sure you share this episode, share the show, subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, if you have ideas for future episodes or questions for a future episode of Question and Astle, head on over to our website, bonuspointspodcast.com. That's going to do it for today's episode of Bonus Points. I'm Mr. Astle. Thank you for joining us once again as we continue every episode to put out into the deep, exploring the world of theology and beyond. <laughs>